Hello everyone, it's Curtis Reitzel and Matt Reitzel with the Wealth Building with a Purpose show. The place where we talk about everything real estate with a special focus on wealth building. Let's ride. All right, everyone, we're going to get started. We're an appointment for seven and it's seven. So, Jeff Reitzel is an active real estate and mortgage broker ranking top 1% in Canada for the last 20 years. His purpose in life is to help and mentor others in all aspects of life and business. He has been on many humanitarian aid trips to Africa, working closely with cured lepers and orphans, was voted top 40 under 40 in KW, was awarded the Pierre Fournier Five Diamond Award from Mortgage Alliance and the Wow Mentor Award from Water the Region. Jeff was recently named Canadian Ambassador to Ghana, Africa for Possibilities International. Please help me welcome Jeff. Thanks, man. talk about tonight is real estate investing and we're basing the presentation this evening off of the book The Millionaire Real Estate Investor. Now I had been investing in real estate prior to coming across this book and I've been doing seminars and talks on investing in real estate prior to coming across the book The Millionaire Real Estate Investor. What I really liked about The Millionaire Real Estate Investor and what it, why it ranked so high amongst all the books I'd ever read is it was a heavily researched book. So it wasn't an individual's view on how they thought you should invest in real estate or how they invested in real estate and, and you should do what they did. They went out and they interviewed 120 of the top real estate investors across North America and Gary, Dave, and Jay put their systems and models into models and systems that we could follow. So I really liked that about it and I also liked that there was nothing else. So it's a $20 book that you can go buy at Indigo and there's nothing else that you can ever pay for or sign up for. There's no coaching, there's no ment uh, monthly mentoring sessions, there's no Diamond Club Award that you can be part of for $30,000 a year. There was nothing else. And I went, that's really cool. I can get my head around that and talk about that and promote that, that sort of concept. So when I, when I first read this book, what really, there's probably 40 things in there that really stuck out for me, but the number one thing was for me was to get a criteria and focus on that criteria. So when they interviewed 120 top investors, you didn't find investors that owned 120 unit apartment buildings and duplexes, and then investors that owned condos and triplexes. You found that investors owned condos, or they owned triplexes, or they owned fiveplexes, or they owned student investment properties. So that really gave me a focus in my investing career, and then I focused on a particular criteria. That's probably what I took away from this book more than anything else, was to focus on a criteria. So why are you here today and why are you thinking of investing in real estate? And when I ask this question, and I'm never going to call on anybody in the audience, but if I ever ask somebody, what they normally say is, Jeff, I want to invest in real estate because I want more money. And I'll say, oh, that, that's, that's neat. Uh, how, how long have you wanted more money? Well, I've always wanted more money. So simply the want of money is not going to attract more money into your life. It just isn't, because most of us have probably wanted more money at some point for whatever the reason is. It could be to take a trip, buy a fancy car, to, to build an orphanage somewhere. It doesn't really matter why. 
the, the easiest way to attract money is to clearly define why you want it. I've always said, and so do a lot of successful people out there, if the why is big enough, the how becomes pretty easy. And you can stay pretty motivated if you have a reason behind investing in real estate. And right now you may not know what those, th those reasons are. But let's say it was to send a niece or a nephew to university someday or to have an extra $500 a month in retirement income, whatever it is, if you clearly identify that, it's going to be easier to get there someday rather than just sitting there saying, I, I wish I had more money. The only person I've ever asked that question and they've said, no, I don't want any more money was my son Lucas when he was four. And he said, Dad, no, I don't want any more money, I don't care. Other than that, I think most of us would like to attract more money into our lives for, for whatever reason, maybe. So why am, I here, why am I here today and why do I continue to do this month after month, year after year, decade after decade? The reason I continue to do it is to share my thoughts on money and life and investing in real estate, but really a lot of, about life and money and why you want to invest in real estate. I definitely don't need to be here this evening. I want to be here this evening. I remember meeting, I, I, met, I met three agents yesterday and I was just coaching them on their, you know, their real estate investing and their business and that sort of thing. And two of them were Matt and Curtis. And I said, I was just on a two week vacation in, in Florida. I went to Florida for a week and then took our kids on a cruise. And I was thinking, geez, you know, I, maybe I should just retire. I say that all the time to myself, just kind of for two seconds, jokingly. And then you now meeting with Matt and Curtis, first meeting of the morning and I went, well, if I retire, I couldn't impact their lives anymore. And if I stopped coming here, I couldn't impact your lives anymore. And it's what keeps me going. You'll hear in my talk here that money is good for the good it can do. That's my belief system around money. I don't have any negative connotations around money. It's not the root of all evil. It's not, it's not any of that stuff. I think there's only good for money. And when you, when you look at, when I look at people that have been in my life for many years and they had no money, and they were grumpy, miserable people. When they have money, they're just grumpier and, and more miserable. When they're happy giving people and they, they attract money, they just become happier and they, and they wind up giving more. Money is very neutral to me. It does, it's, not, it's not good or bad, it's what, you, it's what you make of it. Money though is money and happiness is happiness. And I will talk about that today. They're, they're almost to a degree not related at all. Money is money and happiness is happiness. There are people in the room that are going, that doesn't make any sense to me. If I made another 100000 I'd be happier. And you, you wouldn't be. Study after study shows that you, that you just wouldn't be. So what are we going to cover tonight? Understanding that you have the power to change your life, and more importantly to me, understanding that I and everybody in the room has the power to change other people's lives through investing in real estate, learning a system to follow, Overcoming your myth understandings. We all walked into this room this evening with our own myths and beliefs on why real estate investing does or doesn't work. Thinking like a millionaire thinks, your big why or your purpose for doing anything that you're going to do. Understanding the, the power of leverage and then helping you get on the path to building your, your dream team. This definitely isn't something you can or even want to do on your own. So a little bit about myself. Actually, all that I'm going to talk about is the first one there is a husband and father. And the reason that I have that First is I believe that's my most important role in life is being a great husband and a great father And if I can be great at that then everything else can fall into place. So if you People that know me I made this decision when I was I think a teenager if someone were to say to me What do you do? My answer always was about what? 
because I never wanted my work to define who I was. I'm not a firefighter or a police officer or a real estate agent. That's not who I am. That's how I trade my time for money. It doesn't define who I am. Uh, and I was very clear from a very young age that I didn't want that to define me. So when I would do stuff like this and I would list this first, well, that would then define who I am. So what do you think would happen if my son had a, he doesn't play hockey, but if he had a hockey game tonight at 7 o'clock? You think I would be standing in front of this room? I wouldn't. I wouldn't be here. I would be at my son's hockey game uh, because I've clearly defined that that's the most important thing. This other stuff's important too, and business is important. We probably just would have moved this to a Wednesday or somebody else would have, would have filled in my, my role here tonight. Do you know how a child, I wrote a book a number of years ago, and I called it The Millionaire Father. And you know why I called it The Millionaire Father? is because if I called it the father, nobody would read it. <laughs> I just wouldn't. So it has a lot to do with money in it, but, but it's also about just being a good dad, or, or a good mom, or a good niece, or a good aunt, whatever. Do you know how humans, and especially children in this case, measure love? There's only one way they measure love, and it's time. It's the time you spend with them. It's, it's nothing else. Uh, until they become teenagers. <laughs> I feel those now. <laughs> and I heard Josh like last year said, okay, you've spent enough time with me. Can you stop hugging me and kissing me and just give me some money? Like, can we get a video game system? Can we do something? Um, yeah, but they've known over the years that, no, they, they haven't gone without. My wife, who I'm, I'm married to, and my parents buy them stuff. They just know they've never gotten anything from dad. I remember in 2010 or 2000, uh, 2010, I was with... Um, Gordy Howe at, at a signing, and I saw Detroit Red Wing pool cues. So Gordy signed them to the kids, and I gave them to the kids for Christmas, I think. And we had a pool table in the basement that they never played. Well, every night, every day, they would take the things out of the case, screw them together. They were $20. They would play pool that day, or, or, or they wouldn't. They would then at night unscrew them, put them back in the case, and it would sit at the end of their bed. Like it was such a prized possession to them because their dad <laughs> bought it for them because that wasn't what I did with them. I would take them everywhere, I'd take them on vacations, we'd go to Chuck E. Cheese pretty much every night. It was devastating when the Cambridge one closed. <laughs> Literally like five nights a week I was at Chuck E. Cheese with them. So I did lots with them, but my gift to them was time, it wasn't, it, it wasn't money. Uh, but now they want the money. Uh, yeah, the passive income to, the book's definition of financial wealth is a little bit different than this, so I've just altered it a little bit because this is my definition. Financial wealth to me is the passive income to finance your life without having to work. And you get to decide what your life is and how much money your life requires. So my mother-in-law receives a pension of around six or seven, probably $700 a month. And that's 100% of her income. She doesn't get income from any other sources. And she would tell you that she is financially wealthy. And I would agree with her. She is. She receives enough passive income to finance what she wants to do in life. And it's $700 a month. And it finances everything that she wants to do. She's able to work. If she wanted to do more, she would go get a job and do more. Most of us would look at that and say she's poor. She's not, though. She's, she, leads, she leads a very rich life. She lives in a single detached bungalow on Chapel Street. She has a car and $700 a month. And it provides her all of her needs. So she's financially wealthy. We look at financial wealth and we say, well, we attribute a number to it. We say, well, you have to be a millionaire. You've got a five million or a billion or 10 billion. That's what financial wealth is. Well, if I look at my mother-in-law who has a, an income of $700 a month, or um, let's say Roy has a house that's paid for and it's worth a million dollars. And he has no passive income every month. 
Well, would you rather the passive income or the like? Who's wealthier? It's just a matter of opinion. And a lot of people would say, "Well, Roy, is he's worth a million dollars? Your mother-in-law is worth two hundred fifty thousand. Yes, but she has more passive income than than Roy has. So, would you rather have a three million dollar house paid for, or twenty thousand, or ten thousand dollars a month in passive income coming in? I'd probably rather have a net worth of zero and twenty thousand a month in passive income coming in. That would be wealthier to me. So, it isn't financial wealth isn't a number. Just because you're a millionaire doesn't mean you're financially wealthy. Just you know, billionaire, you probably are. But it, but it, it isn't a number, and you get to decide what that, what that is. And I think that's kind of cool. So that, that's my definition of financial wealth. It's the passive income without having to work to finance whatever your life is and whatever you want to do in life. So this book is dedicated to the men, men and women who have a passion for their work, yet dream of someday being able to finance their vision in life without having to work, dedicated to those who want the biggest life possible, actively seeking ways to finance that vision, and you want to say at the end of the day, I'm glad I did instead of I wish I had. How many of us have ever looked at a piece of real estate in the past and now looking back, go, man, I wish I would have bought that? <laughs> I've been there many, many times. And maybe you weren't in a position at the time where you could buy it, but maybe you were. Maybe there was a way to put it together. Maybe there was. Is Jason still in the room? Hmm. Good, I'll pick on Jason. So Jason and I have been friends for... 25 years or so now, and I was Jason's buyer's agent in 2000 when he was buying his first house. And it was a, um, a semi-detached on Bankside Crescent and Kitchener. It was around 115 or 120,000, I can't remember exactly. And we got an accepted offer on it, and his father-in-law at the time almost squashed the deal because he thought $120,000 for a semi-detached house on Bankside Crescent, like that's highway robbery, who would ever pay 120,000? Well, I looked at the comps, and they were all within a 1,000 of that. Like, he was paying market value for the property. But his father-in-law had paid 70000 or 80000 for his semi eight years earlier, and there's no way semis were ever worth 120000 So they thought about it and then eventually made the decision to go, go through with the purchase instead of walking away. And if we fast-forward to 2013, with that one property, they had acquired seven or eight properties from just making that first purchase, from refinancing and then buying rental properties and and then eventually keeping that semi as a, as a rental and then buying another owner-occupied to live in. And that all happened from simply making that first purchase. Imagine what would have happened if they would have decided to just rent for another five years. Like, yikes. The median net worth the last time I looked in the U.S. of a renter was $4,400, and the median net worth of a homeowner was just under $200,000. It's a big difference between renting and, and owning over time. My brother Kevin brought up a good point to me yesterday about renting that I actually never thought about. If you buy a property versus renting a property, because some people go, I like to rent a property because I don't have the expenses and my costs stay fixed. Well, your costs actually don't stay fixed. Your costs go up forever. You're paying $1,300 a month right now for something. You're going to be paying $2,000 a month for that someday and $2,500 and $3,000. Not that I've never thought about this, but you kind of put it in, in a context where when you buy something, your costs are fixed pretty much, and then eventually a lot of the costs go away someday when the, when the property is paid for. Where a lot of renters have the mindset that it's cheaper to rent. Well, maybe it is per month right now, but over the long run, it, it simply isn't cheaper to rent. It simply isn't. So the power of proven models over trial and error. So we're all going to get somewhere, and our somewhere is our natural ceiling of achievement. And 
this squiggly line is all the roadblocks that you're going to hit along the way. And I, I hit a lot of those roadblocks. I didn't really know what I was doing when I started investing in real estate. But the, the, the smartest thing I ever did is I started investing in real estate. I pulled the trigger and I did something. So I eventually got somewhere. In order for me to break through that, I needed to follow proven models and systems and find out what other people are doing. And it's kind of, I don't know how many properties I had at that time, maybe 10 or 12 properties. And for me to break through that, it was really the millionaire real estate investor and getting focused at a criteria that allowed me to break through that is following models and systems that, that other people are doing rather than trying to recreate the wheel. You know, when I got into real estate 20 years ago, 21 years ago, you know how I became successful? I went to my dad, who was in real estate at the time, and I said, what do you do? Let me just see what you do, and then I'm going to copy what you do. I'm going to put my own little twist on it, maybe, but if you're doing databasing, and you're doing open houses, and you're doing stuff, and you're very successful, why wouldn't I just do what you do, rather than trying to recreate the wheel? The same applies, really, with anything. If you want to be successful investing in real estate, just follow people that are, that, are, that are doing what you want to be doing. The foundational model of the millionaire real estate investor. So we have the inner part of the triangle. You first need to think like a millionaire thinks. So if I, if I look at thought process for a second. So assuming everything's equal and you came from an equal background. So I'm not talking people that were born into money or had money given to them. But if we look at at two individuals that went to the same school, born in the same family, um, same background, same education, same everything, and one of them becomes very wealthy and the other one doesn't, a lot of cases it's just the way they think. They think a little differently. That's not true for all millionaires out there, but people from the same situation, that tends to be what it is. So let me give you some, let me give you an, an example on that. Just thinking differently. I'm, I'm in Las Vegas a number of years ago and the most expensive piece of art my wife and I own would be like $40 from winners on our walls, like the most expensive piece. And we're in the bottom of Caesar's Palace, and there's a Peter Lick studio, and just this gorgeous portrait photos, photographs. And there's one of the ocean, or a dock looking out at the ocean. It was, the, like, it was just stunning. So I went inside, and the sales guy said, well, that's $3,850. And I went, what? For a picture? Like, that's, that's insane. And he said, well, it's probably going to sell out tomorrow which is, it was released today, it'll probably sell out tomorrow. I said, sell out, what is, can't you just print more? He said, well, we print 950 of each print, that's it. So the first 10 sell, or the first 28 sell for $3,950, and then the next 10 sell for some, blah, blah, blah. And then the last 10 sell for 100 grand. Weird. I'll put one on hold. And thought about it all night with my wife, and we went, we're not spending four grand to put a piece of art on our wall. Forget it. So I canceled the, canceled the deal. Next year we go back, the guy remembers me, I see the same thing in the, in the thing, and he said, it did sell out the next day, there are 127,500 now. And I went, oh, okay, so I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. Uh, I really like Central Park, Peter Lake's picture of Central Park in the fall. It's just, it's the most beautiful photograph, but it's not a popular one. So it, it's been out for years, it's not popular, but I love it. So I said, I'd really like to hang that in my dining room, but I don't want $4,000 sitting on my dining room wall. I'd like to get it for free, so could you tell me the next two prints that are coming out that you think are going to be really hot sellers? I'll buy both of, I'll buy all three right now, so I'll, I can spend twelve grand. Take the Central Park home. I don't want to take the other two home. Uh, I'll just when they come in, you keep them here, and then I'll tell you where to ship them. And that's what I did. I sold them for fourteen or fifteen thousand dollars each, literally a week after they were released. Now I'm not telling you to go buy Peter Lick art. 
at all. I'm telling you to just look at things a little bit differently, and there's going to be opportunities in your world outside of investing in real estate that you need to take advantage of. You need to do your research. Don't just go start buying art or start buying sports memorabilia that I've done. It's got to be heavily researched and know what, you do, know what you're doing. But I now, when I see it in an art auction, a piece of art sell for $40 million, I understand it didn't sell for anything. That guy, that guy or girl took $40 million from their bank account and put it on their wall. And then they'll take it off their wall and sell it to someone for $50 million. Where we'll spend $40 and then throw it out or donate it to Goodwill. So we're actually the kind of the, the fools. They're not spending any money. They're not spending $40 million on a painting. They're not that crazy to do that. They're just moving it in one investment vehicle to another investment vehicle. They just think a little different. And we would do it on a much smaller scale, obviously. We're not going to go and spend $40 million on, on art, um, but a much smaller scale. So it's just, it really is, is how, you, how you think. And my mom, after I'm almost 42 now, she's starting to understand how I think. I remember once here at the office, I said, Mom, I got a package of reception. Can you go grab it? And it was an old hockey jersey with moth holes through it. And she said, Jeff, the invoice says 66500 US. And I went, well, yeah, I, the reason I got it for so cheap is the guy that was selling it didn't know what he had. And she went, I don't understand. And I said, Mom, to me, it's worth 10 cents. I don't know why anybody would pay 10 cents for an old hockey jersey. It doesn't make any sense to me. But I knew the seller... And it was in a, a public auction. I didn't take advantage of anybody. Anybody could have bought it. I just had the highest bid at 66000 US. She didn't get it. Well, I sold it like three years later for a very nice profit because I, I, I understood that market and I knew that market uh, where she just had both had a heart attack. The next stage is to, to buy a million dollars in real estate. So if you could go out today and buy a million dollar building with no money down, you'd be at that second step. I'm not saying you should or could. You, you could or should do that. That's very a very risky way to be a real estate investor. I know there's a lot of people out there that go to these seminars and courses and listen to these speakers from other countries, and they say, use hard money, use other people's money. And that, that can work sometimes. Your life can also fall apart doing that type of real estate investing. Now, if you have nothing, and maybe that's okay if you don't have, if, if you have nothing, but there are people that get hurt along the way a lot of times in that type of real estate transactions, a lot of times. We were, in the, like 2008, 2007, 2008, 2009, we could buy investment properties in Canada with no money, with no money down. It then changed to five, then 10, then 20, then 25, but we could do no money down. So I could take a couple that was making $40,000 a year combined that qualified for their own debt and go out and sell them two, three, four, five, ten 10 in some cases, investment properties, making $40,000 a year. You think that was wise? Mm. Yeah, the market went up and things kind of worked out okay, but should somebody that's making $40,000 have $2 million in mortgages? Not in, not in my opinion. Their life can fall apart very quickly. I had other investors that already had 30 properties that had loan to values of maybe 40 or 50 or 60% on them. And I said, well, yeah, that can make a lot of sense for you to buy another 10 with no money down. Your overall portfolio loan to value is still low. That can make sense. And you can weather a storm if you have seven tenants not paying. How does a couple making $40,000 a year cover rent for seven units if you happen to have seven units vacant at one time? And you say it doesn't happen. Most of the time it doesn't happen, but it can happen. Um, so be careful. You know, we all want to get to that stage very quickly. It just cautions you to do it properly. But you'd be at the next step there as soon as you've purchased a million dollars in real estate. 
The next is where you own a million, so you have a net worth position of at least seven figures in your real estate investing investments. And the pinnacle is where you're receiving a million dollars a year in passive income. Now, I understand that almost 100% of people that start down this path will never get to the point where they're receiving a million dollars a year in passive income, pretty close to 100%. But it is possible. There are investors in the Millionaire Real Estate Investor book. I was on a panel with one a couple of years ago. This was a funny panel because I'm, I'm on the panel, which I don't think I qualified to be on the panel. And then this couple beside me who receives a million dollars a month in passive income from the real estate investments is beside me. And then this other guy who owns two duplexes in Toronto. So my plan being on the panel was I'm not going to speak. I just want to listen to the people that are beside me. So if the audience asks a question, I'm going to wait for like five minutes and hopefully they speak up. And then if they don't, then I'll maybe answer. They didn't get to talk. It was the guy that owned two duplexes. Answered every question. It was unbelievable to me. I wanted to hear these, these, this couple talk. But they do receive a, they, they receive that passive income, a million dollars a month from their real estate investments. I have a real estate, had a real estate investor client, he just passed away, that was receiving a million dollars a week in passive income from his investments. Now he started 60 some years ago. None of his is attributed to me, obviously. But he never saw that happening. When he bought his first roadside motel when he got out of the, out of the army with no money. And, you know, part, he, the motel would have a for sale sign. He said, well, I don't have any money, but I'll work here for free for the next two years. Can I have a 20% ownership? And started with motels and then did small apartment buildings and so on and became a multi-billionaire. It was just the cool, and you should see the cool stuff this man does with his money, or did with his money. But he never envisioned that. He never thought, well, someday I'm going to have a million dollars in net income a week from my real estate investments. He never thought it was possible. So if you're sitting there today, you obviously don't know what's possible if you're not investing already and not doing stuff. But if you're setting goals, I, I challenge you to set your goals a little bit higher than you think you're able to obtain right now. So if your goal is in 15 years to have $400 a month in passive income from your real estate investments, that's great. If you set your goal at $400, you'll probably get there. But maybe you set your goal at $1,200 or $1,600 or $2,000. Because the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to end up at $800 or $1,200 or $1,600. Your goals need to be realistic. If they were to be at $2 million a month in passive income in four months, you better be starting with $100 million or so. Um, but set them a little bit higher than you, than you think is possible because you really don't know what's possible right now. The outer part of the triangle, the bottom part, the network, the, the team of people that helps support your real estate purchases, I'll talk about them more as we go on, the terms, how you buy and finance the properties, and the other part of the is the criteria, the type of properties that you'll even look at. And criteria for me is important. So if somebody came to me today and said, Jeff, I got a really good deal on a 15-plex in Teeswater, I'd be like, cool, let me see if I have a client that's interested in a 15-plex in Teeswater. Well, Jeff, it's a really good deal. It's got good cash flow. Aren't you interested? No, I don't buy 15-plexes. So I have no interest in it whatsoever. None. It doesn't matter how good. I don't, that's nothing wrong with 15-plexes. It's just not my criteria. So if you'll just look at anything and are chasing everything, it becomes very hard to focus on, on what you become really good at. So a condo came up at, on North Lake Drive in Waterloo. This is probably going back three years now. And the, the listing came up at 110,000. And when 110,000, that's really low. Like the sales in there have been 135 to 145 is what they've been. 110,000 is really low. So I contacted the listing agent and the listing agent said, well, the, <coughs> there's no showings for 24 hours. The seller doesn't want any showings for 24 hours. So I said, okay, I'll have an offer to you in 10 minutes. So I sent him an offer. 
at 105,000, cash, no conditions. Seller gets to pick the closing date. I don't care what the seller leaves behind, I just want the seller to leave. First I asked, is there somebody living there? And he said, yes. So I said, if there's somebody living there, there's probably a kitchen, there's probably a bathroom. This, ha this person happened to be a hoarder. Uh, but there's probably stuff there, and I'll just account for, I'll, I'll just figure that I need to replace everything. So I'm going to do new bathroom, new kitchen, new carpet, new baseboards, and new floor. So I counted for all of that in my offer, and I offered 105000 And the listing agent writes me back and says, we have 14 showings booked for tomorrow. Can you change the irrevocable on your offer till tomorrow? And I said, you have 60 minutes left. I would go see the seller. So the seller can say no to it. I don't, it doesn't matter to me, but no, I'm not changing my irrevocable till tomorrow. You just said he's a hoarder. Maybe he doesn't want people, 14 more couples coming through his house. Give him the option to take this offer. He doesn't have to take this offer. He did. He took the offer. Now, anybody in this room could have done that. I didn't have an advantage because I was a realtor. The listing came up. It went out to probably 700 buyers. Anybody could have done that. Now, the reason I could do it is because I knew and understood the product so well. But if that would have been a 15-plex in Teeswater and it was 300000 under market value, I wouldn't have really known it or, or understood it if I just chased everything. So I, I, I get there then on the, the day of closing, or not the day of closing, it was a couple weeks before closing when I walked through with my contractor, and it was fine. It was, well, it needed, everything needed to be replaced, but it was fine. It was just the guy had a lot of stuff in there. And I went on a mission trip to 10 days to Ghana, Africa. I came back, it was, it was fully renovated and staged. And it sold the next day for 152.5, which set a record at the time for a sales price in that complex. And the only reason I could do that is because I knew the criteria, and I knew it so well. And I'm not advising that you go out and buy properties without seeing them. <laughs> this is not my advice at all. My advice is get to know a criteria really well and know a product really well. I've owned eight or nine condos in that complex in the past. I know it very well. And then maybe you can make those moves down the road. But you've got to know the, you gotta know the criteria. Overcoming your misunderstandings. So we're first going to talk about three personal myths and then five investing myths. The first personal myth is I don't need to be an investor. My job will take care of my financial wealth. The truth is you do need to be an investor. Your job simply is not your financial wealth. Please don't quit your jobs. They come in handy when you're trying to qualify for mortgages. <laughs> but understand that it's not going to determine wealth for most of us. Unless we're you know, highly paid CEOs or actors or actresses or sports players, it's really hard to, 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 to create wealth just from your occupation. Myth number two, I don't need to be financially wealthy, I'm happy with what I have. And I, I, I'm in that situation, I've been in that situation for years and I'm happy with what I have, but I understand that there's lots of people out there that aren't happy with what they have. And if I'm able to attract money in my life to do good for others, why wouldn't I? As long as it, like it, if it's not killing me and I'm not working 20 hours a day, why wouldn't I do that? Because just to sit at home and do whatever I want to do and just think of myself, it's a very selfish way to live a life, I believe. So if you're going to attract money to help others, then I would say do it. And you, you don't know what the future holds. You don't know what you're going to want money for or what two-year-old niece you might want to send to university. You just don't know what the, you don't know what the future holds. You have, you have no idea. So plan for... Plan for what you don't know. It doesn't matter if I want or need it, I just can't do it. The truth is you can't predict what you can or can't do until you try. You, you simply can't. Five investing myths. Investing is complicated. The truth is investing is only as complicated as you make it. 
So how, and I'm not going to call in anybody in the room, but how many of us really truly understand the mutual funds and the stocks and the bonds that we invest in? Okay, there's going to be some hands that they, they actually do. And that's where they should be investing, some or all of their money. Most of us have absolutely no clue about the mutual funds that we're investing in. I remember meeting with my financial planner every quarter and he would say there's something happening in China and something's happening in this country and something's happening in this country and there's gonna be gold here and that's why we're gonna be like, okay, cool. <laughs> I had no idea. <clears throat> I had no idea. So it, I was just hoping that that person actually happened to know what they were doing. But most of us don't. We invest in things that are complicated and things that we don't understand. The best investments require knowledge most people don't have. The truth is your best investments will be in areas that you can or already understand. So I had a bunch of friends at a high school that went to work at this little company called Research in Motion. Um, and it was just a, it was a little company at the time. I had the very, actually I still have it, I had the, I had the very first Blackberry, like the little, the pager one and then the, the 957, and changed my life that I could actually send out a message and somebody would come back with a reply rather than just getting a pager message, like it's just, it was revolutionary to me that you could have this two-way conversation. Um, that's all I knew though. I thought this is really cool, it's neat, but I don't really know anything else. And my friends were getting all these stock options and Rim was tripling whatever they donate, whatever they put in and the stock was going up and my advice to them was, and I didn't know what I know today, but you should probably do that. If you're gonna give them $100 and they give you $100 more in stock, if $200 in stock for $100, that makes a lot of sense to me and you guys know it, you're there on a daily basis. Several of those guys making thirty-five, dollars $40,000 a year sold their stocks for millions of dollars when they left Research in Motion. And primarily it was because they were investing in something that they really understood. They were there and living and eating and breathing it on a daily basis. I could never get my head around investing in Research in Motion. I just didn't, I didn't get it. The phone was really cool. So I find this, my son finds this phone, and I'm not one to keep stuff from the past, but he finds this phone in, in the basement and puts it on the cradle and charges it, and sure enough, it still, it still works, and it's really funny. He's looking at it, and he said, first of all, he's doing this, right? He's touching the screen, which is really funny because you can't touch the screens on those, I'm trying to press the icon, and, he, and, he's, and he's pressing the music icon, and I said, son, that's not a music icon. That If you scroll here, it's to change it from beep to vibrate. That's, that's what it did. There, there's no music. He said, well, how'd you listen to music? I said, well... <laughs> I had a CD player. And he says, well, what did you do for a flashlight? I said, I carried a flashlight. That's what I did. And he said, well, how do you make phone calls on this? I said, well, I had a cell phone. You couldn't make phone calls on this. And there were two other things. He goes, man, your pockets must have been heavy. <laughs> yeah, they were. He just, he thinks this is the coolest thing. And I said, watch this, son. I said, turn the lights out and dictate a message to me. So he did. And I'm typing with my thumbs and didn't miss a word. In, the, in complete darkness. That's how much of a crack guy I was. Like I could do anything on that thing. It was just so cool even, even 10 years later. Um, and he said, no phone. Like that's crazy. The Blackberries didn't have phones. I said, well later models came out with phones but when they came out with a phone if you were on the phone you couldn't get your emails. So what I would do sometimes if I was talking to my brother I would hang up by mistake so that all my emails could come in and then I'd phone my brother back and go, sorry we just got disconnected so that all my emails would come in so that I could reply to the emails. Oh, he just got the biggest hoot out of this story. It was just, it was funny. But they, they knew what they were investing in, and that made sense. And you might go through this process and go, investing in real estate doesn't make any sense. For me, I should invest in another area. That might be the case. It's not for everybody. It's risky, I'll lose money. So with investing, there's always going to be risk. 
The type of real estate investing I'm talking about is not buying up farmland between Kitchener and Guelph because you think the cities are going to merge closer together and you can sell your land to a developer. That is not investing in real estate to me. That is speculating and it can pay off big time. But you need to have money to be able to do that sort of thing. And, lo and lots of it. And there are, we know people, not directly related to us, but like second and third and fourth cousins that purchased property between Kitchener and Guelph 45 years ago. And there's like little salamanders standing in their way that they can't develop this, this land, you know. Has Guelph and Kitchener really moved an inch closer together in 40 years? I don't think so. Like there's Breslaws has had some new homes, but, you know, it, it's speculating. And I've had other friends that bought up properties around the universities hoping that the city changed the zoning to allow high-rise student buildings to go up. And that worked out pretty good. You know, but they also did that in lots of different cities where it hasn't worked out at all. So it's speculating. When I'm talking about investing in real estate, I'm talking about buying a condo, a house, a 15-plex, a 30-unit student building, and renting to nice people. That's the type of investing I'm talking about. And it's very boring. It's very, it's so boring that I get investors after, after 5 and 10 and 15 years that come back to me and go, yeah, we're just going to sell. You know, nothing's really happening. I'm like, nothing's really happening. <laughs> you bought it for two, it's worth... Five, you owe 80 on it. You were renting it for 12, it's now renting for 18. Yeah, it's working. <laughs> that's totally working. That's what it's supposed to do. They go, but it's just so, it gets so boring that they think they need to sell it and then go do something else with it. Like it's, it's crazy. I had a client recently that sold both of the rentals to go start a company. And I went, oh. <laughs> that was maybe not the smartest thing to do, you know? Uh, it, it, things can work out. I'm not saying you shouldn't start companies. Starting companies is a good thing, but we get so bored with it, with the type of investing that I do. And myth number five, all the good investments are taken. And the truth is, every market has its good share of investments. So I'm, my dad is doing a talk in 2010 in, in Destin, Florida, on uh, real estate investing and, and on some other stuff. So I thought I'd fly down with my son. <coughs> Josh would have been uh, seven years old. I'll fly down and just... I'll sit in the audience and just kind of surprise him. Well, somehow I, I wound up on stage and he was sitting in the audience. And somebody asked, if, so we got to this topic, and somebody said, well, Jeff, all the good investments are taken in Destin, Florida. There are no opportunities anymore. And I said, I'm sorry, i got to be honest. I did no research on your market before I came here. I know nothing about it. I know I'm in Florida. I actually landed in the wrong airport and had to drive three and a half hours out of the way. I have no idea where I am right now. But maybe you're right. But could you buy a bungalow today, rent it to a family, and have a positive cash flow? And he said between four and six hundred dollars a month. And I went, well, I don't get it. And he goes, oh my goodness. I never looked at that as an investment. Everything here to us is beachfront condos. I've been a realtor for 22 years. I've never thought about buying a house and renting it to a family, ever. It's never even crossed my mind. And, it, and, and I went, well, okay, so maybe there are opportunities. He goes, some. There's tons of opportunities. 30% of our population rents. I said, yeah. 25 to 30% in, in most areas. So you may have to look at the type of investment differently. Maybe single-family homes doesn't work any, I'm not saying it doesn't, but maybe it doesn't work in Kitchener anymore, and you need to look at duplexes or triplexes or duplex conversions or whatever. You might just have to look at the market that you're in a little bit differently. I think it is true that in a lot of markets, if we looked at, and I'm not an expert at, in Toronto or Vancouver, but if we looked at those markets, it might be very difficult for you to buy a single condo and rent it and not lose money. That could be very difficult. You might have to drive an hour, an hour and a half down the 401 to find something. 
But there's still going to be opportunities within every, every market. It might just be harder to find those opportunities. So on that, on that same flight, um, uh, I, we're, going through, uh, we're going through customs. And my seven-year-old, who's a comedian, I don't know where he gets it from, he said to the customs officer, if my dad has anything to do with flying this plane, he'll kill everyone. In a straight face. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> what and why did this just happen? I said, well, first of all, I know we're getting separated now. I'm on a do not fly list forever. <laughs> so they do. They separate the two of us. And they said, why would your son say that? And I said, I know exactly why he said it. I was taking my flying lessons in, 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 at Waterloo Wellington a few years ago. And he knows the story that when the flight instructor asked me to line the plane up with the runway, I actually lined it up with Highway 78. <laughs> so, yeah, not so funny, but funny. He just assumes you know that story. I, like, I guarantee it. So then when I interviewed him, and of course that was, that was, he just thought that the customs officer probably would know that story, and then we were allowed on the plane. But, oh my goodness. <laughs> a completely straight face, and we'll kill everybody. I'm like, awesome. Thanks, Josh. <laughs> so, uh, money is good for the, the good it can do. Again, I said that earlier, and you'll, you'll hear me see that, say that a lot. So in 2013, 2013, that's actually not me, that's, that's me, that's my twin brother Ryan. You kind of look alike. <laughs> so in 2013, actually Roy laughing there, Roy's actually been to Ghana with me. Uh, Jason in the room has been to Ghana, Matt and Curtis are coming to Ghana. There's been several people here since this, since this trip have been. But this was my first trip in 2013. I, I remember waking up the spring of that year just questioning everything, going, why, why am I here? What's the purpose? My wife called it a, a midlife crisis, and I said, it's like the third life crisis, it's not a midlife crisis. <laughs> but I just started questioning everything. And I had a great life, great family, great business, great kids. I didn't have any, I didn't have any big stresses in my life, but I just started questioning everything. And my, my friend Sam, who runs the charity called Possibilities International, I've, I've donated on his website for years. I went on the website that night, and there was, he, just launched a, a trip to Ghana, Africa, and he'd never been to Africa before, and I went, well, I like elephants and giraffes. I've never seen an elephant or a giraffe. I've been there 23 times, but I went, elephants and giraffes, that'd be kind of cool. I'll go to Africa. So I signed up for that trip, and literally, the it was a 14-day trip, and for the first ten day, first eight or nine days, I didn't sleep for one minute, and I'm fully engaged every day wherever wherever I was, but I just couldn't sleep. It, it affected me so much, the poverty, the different levels of poverty everywhere we went, but what affected me more than the poverty was how happy everybody was. Like, not that everybody was like, happy everywhere we went, but generally overall, these aren't fake smiles that, that you're seeing here on these kids. They're genuinely, this is an orphanage. And if you ask these children, you know, how, hey, hey, Obed, how are you doing today? You'd say, I'm, I'm blessed and highly favored. Like, it's those kind of comments that they make back to you. And I go, well, why, why are we all on anxiety medication in Canada and worrying about RSPs and car loans and, and all this stuff? And in a lot of places like, I don't know if I have it in this presentation here. Yeah. In, in communities like this, where everybody has the st same straw roof and mud hut, and their worry for today is going out and hunting a big rat for supper. It's bush, they're giant rats. That's their, that's their goal for today. And they know they're going to get a rat and they're going to feed everybody, but that's it. They're not worrying about the RSPs or the truck payments or that this person has nicer straw than me. They're, <laughs> they're genuinely... They're happy. They genuinely are. And I went, why aren't we happy? Maybe happiness is more of a choice than I think. And happiness is more of a mindset than I think. It's not the more we have, the happier that we are. 
not worrying about that they still have an iPhone 5, which I have an iPhone 5. And the reason I have an iPhone 5 still is because it still works. I, that's it. As soon as it breaks, then I'll probably get something else. But it, I have an iPhone 5 because it still works. I'm not trying to prove a point. So getting on this topic of money is money and, and happiness is happiness in a second. I want to go back here. So I go to this leprosarium. And in a leprosarium, leprosariums shouldn't exist anymore because there's very few people, very few cured lepers. The reason these, these colonies exist and they're so big is if you're a child or a grandchild of somebody who had leprosy, the community views you as somebody that has leprosy, and you're, you're an outcast. So these, these communities will have nine women that are in their 80s that are cured lepers, and the community will be 200 strong, which is just crazy, because none of them have leprosy. So this woman here, Charity, I remember sitting down with her and putting, her, putting my arms around her for the first time, and she just started bawling. And this, this village, nobody speaks English. And I said, What's, why, why is she crying so hard? And Sherry said, she hasn't been touched in 40 years. Nobody's touched her. Not her children, not her grandchildren, not a worker, nobody. Because the fear is, the stigma there is then you're going to get leprosy. Why well, did my research before I went? These are cured lepers. But let's say she had active leprosy. I'd have to be around her every day for about seven years before I'd have a chance of catching leprosy. So it would be very, very remote. And I knew that I was going to be there for a very short time. But the power... I wrote a, a blog about the power of the human touch. So people often say to me, I go to Africa a lot, they'll say, why don't you just send, you spend $2,000 on a flight, why don't you just send the $2,000? That could buy a whole bunch of rice. Yeah, that's, that's true, it could buy a whole bunch of rice, but that's more important than buying a bunch of rice or taking a kid to a beach that's never been to a beach and holding their hand. The power of being with people is, is very important. And I didn't know 10 or 15 or 20 years ago that I was going to want or need to do some of the work that I do there in other places. I, I had absolutely no idea, but I'm sure glad that I planned for it. So that now when I want to go to Africa or when I want to support a project there or I want to do something, financially I'm, I'm able to do it. Um, that was just, that was life-changing for me, that first trip there. And I think, every, I think it should be mandatory in high schools, but everybody should do at least one humanitarian aid trip in their life just to ground you and to give you perspective. Um, it just... It blew me away. And I'd seen poverty in, in TV and documentaries, and, and it's just totally different when you're there living it. I know there's people in the room that have actually lived it, like that was their life for a number of years before they came to this country. So when we look at poverty in Canada, or poverty in Kitchener, and I, I've, I've worked with Out of the Cold in Kitchener for, for uh, 10 years before it shut down and still work with the homeless in Kitchener, it's different. So it's our poverty here, and it's our poverty here, but poverty there, you don't eat. There is no food. In Kitchener, there isn't a hungry homeless person. There simply isn't. If they say they're hungry, they're actually lying. They're not hungry. There's 50 places they can go, and they know where to go. I'm not saying they're, they're not liars. They're just, you know, you can get a meal any time of the day in Kitchener-Waterloo, and that's awesome. We have a really good community and support system for homeless people. It's not the same in every other country. There is no social system. There's, no, there's, there's nothing. They just go hungry and don't eat. So I decided that when I come back from this trip, I'm going to do a thing called 500 days. I just made it up. And my wife said, how about 30 days? <laughs> and I said, anybody can do anything for 30 days. I could probably not eat food for 30 days. I could just drink liquids. I want to do 500 days. So for the next 500 days, I'm not going to accept anything new into my life, and I'm going to get rid of 99% of everything that I own. Literally get rid of everything. So 
I did. I, I got rid of 99% of everything I owned in probably 20 days. And the way I got rid of most of it was, and I think you helped pack some of it, Suzanne. Yes. <laughs> so I had, I had a very large Coke bottle collection, a Detroit Red Wings collection. It became very daunting. I had 3,000 Coke bottles, I think, in total. So how do I get rid of my lifelong collection of Coke bottles, one by one on eBay for $4? This is not going to work. It's going to take forever. So I just donated everything to charity, and that got rid of everything very, very quickly. And anything that I thought I might be interested in down the road or might want, I took a picture of. What I understood very quickly is this can be, this can be grandpa's remote, or it can just be a remote. It's actually my choice. So I just chose this to be a remote. It's just an object. So I took the meaning away from it. Now, any craft or, or thin mug that my children made me over the years, I kept all that. I have a box of everything that they made. But everything else, I went, I don't care that that was my dad's rocking chair. It's just a rocking chair, and it allowed me to get rid of everything. There isn't anything that I got rid of that I went, man, I wish I would have kept that. Not a single thing, five years later. Six, uh, yes, almost six years later. So at the end of the 500 days, and when I say I couldn't accept anything new into my life, I took a trip to Florida with my family on a beach for a week and then Disney and I only brought my dress shoes. So that's what I wore to the beach every day. It's what I wore to Disney in shorts. I looked ridiculous. But I couldn't buy a pair of sandals because I forgot my pair of sandals. I was that diligent with it. I couldn't accept anything new. Do you know how well I treated my cell phone and my laptop? Like I, I didn't, I wasn't doing this with it. I would, like it was like this. And then when I got on carpet somewhere, I would take it out <laughs> and reply to a message because I didn't want to go without a cell phone. I, I really treated things differently. I also got rid of obligations if I was on a board of directors that I didn't want to be on or, or whatever. And I, I learned, one of the things, the lessons my mom taught me was less is more, if you didn't believe her. It's actually true. And if you have less, you can actually, you get, you get clarity and you can focus on what's really important in your life or what's really important in your business rather than more, more, more all the time. We're taught that the sales need to be more this year. We need to do more commission this year. We need to do more. More is not always better. Doesn't mean it is worse, but it's, it's not always better. So when we look at, at money is money and happiness is happiness, and I said the relation between the two, and there's all kinds of studies on this, there's hundreds of studies, that pass $60,000 a year in family income. And do you know if you make $50,000 a year as a, as, a, as a family, as your family income, you're above like 95% of the world's population. You make more than 95% of the world does. If you make 50, sorry, if you make $5,000 a year, you're above 50% of the population. If you make $50,000 a year, you're above 95% of the entire world as a, as a family income. Yet, and I, I know there's different countries that have different costs of living and, and all of that. But if you make $60,000 a year in North America, there is no more happiness found beyond that. And most of us in the room are going, that's not true. It can't be true. If I make $200, i am going to be happier. Study after study shows you're not any happier. Doesn't mean you can't have fun on a trip. You can have fun on a trip and you can have fun in your, in your new car, but measurably there's no more happiness found above $60,000 a year. There's lots of happiness between zero and 20,000 when you're homeless and you now have, you, can get a, you can get an apartment and 20 to 40,000 and you have a car. There's some happiness there. But we all want to test that theory. We all want to go, that, that can't be true. I'm going to go make 500,000 and I'm going to be happier. You're not. But still go make the 500,000, but understand you're, just, you're not going to be any happier. There's not. Because if it was true, these people would all be very miserable. And they're not. So my big why is to be a great husband and father, to serve the world, and to, and to help others. What will yours be? And I think you get to decide what your why and your purpose is. I used to say to be a great husband and father, 
to serve my community and help others. That's kind of how I, th I thought. I went, why would I help the homeless people in Ghana, Africa, when there's homeless people in Kitchener? And then I, I quickly understood that that's why the world is the way it is, because we all think like that. To me, whether they're homeless in Japan or in Ghana, what's the difference? They're just human beings somewhere else. If we viewed the world as one community, it would be very different. So it doesn't matter where you're helping. If you're helping somebody, you're helping somebody. Where, what does it matter where they are? So my community changed from you know, Kitchener-Waterloo to the entire world. So where should you invest? In my opinion, you should invest in areas you already know and understand, no matter how good the opportunities might look in another area. And I'm not saying don't look in other areas, but if you live in Kitchener-Waterloo or Cambridge or Guelph or Tilsonburg, and you can find opportunities that make sense in those cities, my advice would be to, to, to buy in the cities that you're in, rather than looking at it and saying, well, Windsor, I can get good cash flow on a triplex in Windsor. There's nothing wrong with buying a triplex in Windsor. But does it make sense to buy where you are? I think it does if there's opportunities to buy where you are. I like that I can just go touch anything that I own within 10 minutes. Well, I now own a property in Ghana that takes me a little more than 10 minutes to get there. But outside of that one, you know, I can, I can touch it whenever I want. And I'm not saying you shouldn't look at investing in Florida or in other cities. There's lots of people in this room that I know that have been very successful investing in the U.S., and investing in other areas. If you're a first-time investor or just starting out, my advice wouldn't be to go buy a condo in Florida. My advice would be to probably buy a condo in Ontario first, something that you can get to very quickly and, and understand the process. But there's often, people often want to look at other areas. They'll, they look at that Bankside Semi now, and you think there's a father-in-law taking their son-in-law through a Bankside Semi now going 450? Come on, you can't buy that. Like semis for 450,000, they'll never be worth 450,000. Those conversations are happening today, for sure. And that father-in-law is probably right. It probably won't be worth 450000 It'll probably be worth 500000 someday and 600000 and so on. So, but we see that semi went from two hundred to four hundred, and we go, well, we've got to buy it by Tilsonburg because we've already missed the opportunity here in, in Kitchener-Waterloo. Well, I would say to you, if you think you've missed the opportunity in Kitchener-Waterloo, then you're probably going to tell your children not to buy any houses here because they've missed the opportunity, too. It's not... You haven't missed any opportunity. I had a I had a 50-year-old investor that now says he's never going to buy anything else in Kitchener-Waterloo. And I said, well, are you going to tell your kids to buy in Kitchener-Waterloo? Well, yeah. I don't get it. He goes, oh, yeah. That doesn't make any sense. Well, we're not going to you to buy in Kitchener-Waterloo. It's true. So when I look at investing in real estate, I think we're very fortunate to be in the region that we're in. We're very fortunate. We have a lot of stuff going for us. I always say we make everything from buttons to blackberries. Not blackberries anymore, but I think we still have a lot of manufacturing, a lot of high-tech universities. There's a lot of stuff going for this community, for, for this region. I look at what, what are the population forecasts looking forward. Is the population expected to grow? And it definitely is for Waterloo Region. That alone bodes well for real estate. It doesn't mean there's a guarantee that prices are going to go up. But if our population is going to go up 30 or 40 or 50 percent over the next 25 years, I think real estate values might go up a little bit too, Pro probably. Or do I look at a, and I'm not making this comment about Windsor because I don't know anything about Windsor, or do I look in Windsor and say, well, I can earn $400 a month in cash flow from my triplex in Windsor. I would just say, well, what are the, what's the growth forecast for Windsor? What is it? If the population is predicted to stay stagnant over the next five years, Real estate values probably will as well. 
They might keep up with inflation, but they're probably going to stay. They're probably going to stay the same. I think we're very fortunate in this region to have a lot of stuff going for us. It doesn't mean you just buy anything and pay anything for it, and the time will make up for it. I'm not saying that, but I think we're lucky. So real estate is the most stable investment. It's accessible. Anyone can buy it. You might not be in a financial position right today that you can buy it, but you can be put in a position in the next 60 days or five years where you can buy it. It's appreciable. It tends to increase in value over time. Leverageable. I'll talk about some personal examples there. Rentable. Improvable. There's a lot of great tax benefits for real estate investors. And the reason there's tax benefits for real estate investors is the government doesn't want to be in that business any more than they already are. And they're not in the business big time. But we, when I say we, real estate investors, house about 25% of the Canadian population. That's a big number. If we weren't doing that, who would have to do it? The government. And they don't want to do that. There's awesome tax benefits to investing in real estate. It's stable, slow to rise, and slow to fall. Now, not always. If we're talking Canada, I would say that that's been very true for 100 years. It's been very very slow to rise and slow to fall, maybe one or two exceptions in the last 100 years. If we're looking at a market like Las Vegas, and I was there, I don't know what it was, 10 or 12 years ago, and I remember sitting at the uh, city center was opening, and I was sitting down there with a, a sales rep, and they say, Jeff, the real estate values here have gone up 35% year over year the last two years. I said, I'm out. And she said, well, no, that's really good. I said, that's really bad. If they're up 35% year over year, it means something bad is about to happen. Because if your incomes are going up 2% and real estate values are going up 35%, it doesn't make any sense to me. So it has to, a crash has to follow that. And, it, and if you look at any market that's done that, like double-digit price increases year over year for, for two or three years, it's followed by a crash. I've been in real estate now almost uh, uh, 21 years in Kitchener. And we haven't seen a double-digit, I think recently there was a 12-month period that we did, but outside of that, a double-digit price increase year over year once. That's really cool. You know, it was 3%, 4%, 8%, 2%, 3%, 4%. It's been very steady, sustainable growth. It doesn't mean it will sustain and will continue, but in a market like that, it can continue, and it can continue for a very long time. But if we, if we see 12% next year and 13% the next year and 14% the next year, it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. Even though a lot of real estate investors go, that's a really good thing. It is if you're going to be looking for bargains, but that's about it. It's not a good thing. You don't want to see that. And it's livable. Shelters in more ways than one. So I was always looking to get ahead, and I'm like 10, 11, 12 years old. I'm taking you back to that time in my life. And I started reading books on investing, and I was doing, I was delivering like 500 penny savers. This is before they had rules on how many a kid could deliver. And I was doing whatever I could to make money. To invest because all the books that I was reading on investing, you know, I, I knew I had time on my side and got a job at Wendy's on Ferry Road and I was investing $800 a month at that time. I was making like $850 a month, but investing $800 of it. And at the end of my first year, I had about $10,000 saved. And I went, if the market went up 10%, because all the books I read said that the stock market increases 12% a year, it, it, it actually doesn't, but all the books said it, it does every year consistently. My investments would be about $11,000 at the end of the first year. And that, that first year, they, they were. It was about $10,700 is what I had. And I realized that that was a neat concept, you know, working, saving, and investing. But it would take me a long time to build any wealth, like forever. And I think it was in one of the monthly fool books I learned about leverage investing. So I invested that $800 a month, and I was earning 12% return annually on my investments. At the end of 40 years, I'd have $9.5 million dollars. 
Well, that number obviously blew me away. I thought you could have buy like entire countries for nine and a half million. <laughs> but what I didn't like was I was the age of my grandparents when I had it. My grandparents were in their, their late, my grandmothers were in their late 50s at that, at that time, late 50s, early 60s. 54 is not that far away anymore, but back then it was, it was, a, it was a long way away. So I went, well, I don't want to wait till 54 to have any money. I want to have money sooner than that. And I'm, I'm not thinking about philanthropy and helping others at this time. I'm just thinking of myself. How can I, like, not work? How can I just sit at home and have money? Like, that's, I'm 14 years old. I took out a loan. So I, th I, I thought if I took out a loan for 130000 and the payments on that loan were $800 a month, and I made those payments for 40 years, what would I have at the end of 40 years? And it was $13.5 And the reason it was $13.5 is I had compounding working for me. And if I... If I did a $130,000 loan and invested that in the stock market day one, at the end of the first year, I'd have 143000 because I got a 10% return on the money I had invested. And then the next year, 10% on the 143 and so on. In both scenarios, I was $800 a month out of pocket. One was a voluntary contribution, and the other was a loan payment. But I got $4 million in free money by having the lump sum invested from day one. So that concept was great. I went, this is great. The only downside is the, the number of years isn't very great. And I got and, and more importantly to me, I have to make that monthly payment. And I don't want to make the monthly payment. I'd rather do fun stuff with my money. How can I, what could I find that would have that same concept where somebody else would make the payment? And it took me a long time to figure it out, but it was real estate. And when I can buy a, I can buy a $130,000 condo, put some money down, and get somebody else to make the payments every month. I went, I found it. That's it. That's the same thing I'm doing, but somebody else is making the payment. Now, sure, are there months they don't pay it and some tenants leave and all that stuff happens? It, it can. I've always ignored that. So I've always stayed very focused on the goal, and I don't care about the noise. So if carpet needs to be replaced, replace the carpet. And you have to set things up properly, though. If you have $50,000 to invest, don't invest at all. Invest 30000 of it or 35000 and put $15,000 into your rental property bank account. And just leave it sit there. And you're going to earn no interest on it, and who cares? You're going to get 1% on it. But when a furnace goes, you just, there it is. There's your furnace. You don't need to worry about it. You don't need to worry about how are you going to make another $2,000 this month. you got to set it up properly. And then you can ignore the noise. And that's what I did. I just ignored all the noise. I didn't go, oh my goodness, somebody put a cigarette through a carpet. I go, well, then just replace the carpet, and let's move on and stay focused on it. On where we're going and I thought I was the smartest person in the entire world because if everybody knew this everybody would do it everybody would and I actually believe that more people would do it the reason that more people don't do it is there's nobody showing them how to do it and that's what led us to start doing these talks years ago is we we learned that because nobody showed me how to do it nobody showed my dad how to do it Wealthy families would teach their kids how to do it, but it stopped there. It didn't go beyond that. Nobody was getting up in front of a room saying, well, here's how I did it, and you can do it as well. So we started doing these talks for friends and family. My, my uncle, Neil, came to one of the very first talks I ever did, and it took him eight years to buy a property. He came to like 100 talks. It was crazy. <laughs> we say this is a process, not an event, and it is. It's more of a process for some people, but it, it needs to be a process. Like Maybe not that long, but it needs to be a process. So how does the math work? If I bought a property today for 400000 and I put 80000 down, now it could be 20000 I'm not sure how to do that, but let's just say it's eighty, And I take a mortgage amount of 320000 Like Assuming this is a property that you could buy today, not in the past. 
And the rent on that was $1,800 a month, and the mortgage payment's that, property taxes, property management, and insurance. And we might have some miscellaneous costs we're missing and repairs and maintenance, but just to give you a basic example here. So our costs are $1,900 a month. And, and many would look at that and go, that doesn't make any sense to me. I'm losing $100 a month. Now, if that $100 a month affects your daily life in any way, then you never should look at something like this, where you could be losing $100 or $200 a month. You shouldn't. It doesn't make any sense. But if you look at that and go, what, whether I have $100 less a month in my bank account or out of my income, it doesn't matter to me, then you can actually look at opportunities like this. And I'm not telling you to look for properties that are losing money. You never should do that. You should look for properties that are making money. But a, a lot of my success in real estate investing has actually come from properties that are losing money. I've made seven figures a couple times from properties that are losing money. So he, here's how. So how does the math work over time? Assuming a 2.5% price growth per year, in, in that time period there, assuming it's losing $100 a month, in a year, you lost $1,200 a month in monthly cash flow, you gained $10,000 in value, and the mortgage was also paid down by $4,000. So you had $14,000 in gains by the value going up and the mortgage being paid down. You had $1,200 in monthly cash flow losses. Your net worth went up $12,800 in a year from losing $100 a month. So I can get my head around that, and I have no struggles with that at all. A lot of people look at that and go, I can't buy a property that's losing money. And it's okay to not buy a property that's losing money, but are you really losing money? Now, let's say the property value didn't increase at all, so value stayed flat. You still made money. You made $2,800. The mortgage was paid down by $2,800. Or sorry, it was paid down by $4,000, netted you $2,800. So I, I bought a lot of properties this way, and what tends to happen over time with rent? If it's renting for $1,800 a month now, is it renting for $1,800 a month in six years? Probably not, yet your, your fixed expenses have relatively stayed the same. I know there's fluctuations with mortgage rates and, and uh, property taxes and stuff go up, but they relatively stay the same. So what if the bank today gave you a $250,000 RSP loan to invest in your RSPs, the monthly payments were $1,400 a month, because you've been such a great client over the years, they're gonna make $1,300 of the payment, you need to make the $100. The 250000 is yours. And at the end of 25 years, that loan's paid off and the RSPs are worth whatever they're worth. We would all do that all day long. There's, there's no question for $250,000. That's how I look at investing in real estate that might be losing a little bit of money. So rent appreciation. Assuming a 1.5% yearly increase, year one it's renting for that, year 10 it's renting for that. And it would be renting for 2500 if the rents went up 3.5% annually. Right now, the, the increases the last number of years have been very low, like 0 0.9, 1.2, 1.7, that sort of thing. It's, historically, it's very low. You can see over time what happens there. That's, that's pretty cool. I bought 10 townhouses in one complex in 2008. Six of my tenants are still there. Like I have six, 11 years later, they're still there. And so that's a good thing. Like I, that's a really good thing because the only thing that my property managers had to do is get new rent checks every January 1st and change a furnace filter. There's literally been no maintenance or no repairs on them. The downside to it is the rents that they're paying. That is a downside. Because I would love it if they would all leave. I don't want them to leave. I would never evict them. They're, they're gonna be there forever long they wanna be there. But those units now would be 1850 a month. And a lot of them are renting for under 1400. 
because I can only increase the rents by what I can increase the rents, right? 1.9 or 2.9 or the ones that have turned over are renting a lot higher, but the other ones, the other ones, the other ones are. I still though, when I look at it, I go, I'd rather, I think I have a duty to the families. Okay, I think I do. And there's something to be said for just having somebody there and that's, that's paying every month that, you know, I was, I, I became the furnace guy last year. I wanted to, I, I wanted to go through the properties to see what they were like. So I said to the property manager, tell them a furnace guy's coming, which was me, know nothing about furnaces, but I know how to change a furnace filter. And, you know, I remember walking in the one unit and it's just the carp, everything's just, not the kitchen, like the, the cabinets and stuff are fine, but the carpets are destroyed. And I went, it doesn't matter. They've been there for 11 years. And when they leave, I'm going to replace the carpets anyway. So I, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. My wife went out of attack. <laughs> you can't become emotionally attached to the stuff. I then looked at it from a rate of return perspective. If I bought that property for 400, I put 80 down, and the property value increased by 5% or 20,000. What was my rate of return? Many would look at that and say your rate of return was 5%. If I had 80 invested and it went up 25 or $20,000, my rate of return was actually 25%. Because I, I can attribute the rate of return to what I had down, not the, not the value of the property. So that, that's pretty cool. I'm not even taking into account their debt pay down, I'm just assuming price appreciation. So if that property value went up 20,000, how much of that does the government want? Zero. They don't know or care that the property value went up. It doesn't matter to them. Down the road when you sell it, you might have, you're gonna have capital gains taxes payable, but the government's never gonna say, hey, we heard your rental property went up 100 grand, we want some taxes. You know that if, you, if your property went up 100 grand and you refinanced it and took 80 grand out to buy another rental, do you think you pay taxes on that 80 grand? You don't. It's tax-free. Assuming you're using it for investment purposes, it's completely tax-free. That's pretty cool. Now, I'll go through a personal example uh, in a couple more slides. So what's likely to happen over time? There's no guarantee with real estate ever. But let's say you bought a home today for 400000 and you put 80000 down to about a $320,000 mortgage. What might things look like in 2044 now? So the home's worth probably 400,000, likely. It probably hasn't decreased over a 25 year period. Likely hasn't. If the home went up two and a half percent annually, it's worth 741,000. If it went up 4% annually, it's worth $1 million after 25 years. That's, that's kind of cool, like the very cool. So your 80,000 or your 20,000, depending on what you put down, turned into 400, 700, or 1 million. Any of those numbers to me are really exciting. It doesn't matter what they are, they're all exciting. So if, uh, if I, what, the way I buy real estate is I go, can I cash flow it or come pretty close to cash flowing it? If, I, if the answer to that is yes, then I go, okay, I'm gonna buy it. My down payment's 50,000, the property's 300,000. In 25 years, my 50 turns into 300. That's really cool. It's almost a certainty that that will happen. Almost a certainty. You can't take $50,000 today and put it into Apple stock and say almost, it's almost certain that it'll be worth 300. You can't do that. It could be, it's certain it's probably gonna be worth between zero and 300,000. Apple might not even be around. I'm just picking on Apple, I'm, I'm an Apple fan. But you don't know, this is almost certain. If you bought a property for $400,000 today that it's gonna be worth 400,000. So your 20 or 80,000 has turned into that. That's pretty cool. It's very boring, and if it turned into, <coughs> 400, if it was just 400 after 25 years, your rate of return wasn't the greatest, but you had a rate of return. That's kind of cool. So refinancing, what does it mean? I did a talk at a, at a high school last year, and I was talking about refinancing, and one of the kids said, what does refinancing mean? I've never heard the word before. And I went, 
oh, there's probably a lot of adults that have never heard that word either. Right, well, I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit more. So if you bought a property today for 400, mortgaged 80% of it, and seven years from now, it's now worth a half a million, and the mortgage balance has gone from 320 down to 250, you can now get a mortgage, assuming you, you and, the and the property qualifies, uh, at, of 80% of the current value, which would be 400, subtract what you already owe on it, you'd be able to access $150,000 in equity from that property to buy other real estate or, or do whatever you're going to do. That's, that's pretty neat. I'm going to go through this pretty quick. This was one example on a triplex that I bought on Highland Road. And I bought it for, this was in 2002, I bought it for 163000 And it wasn't 163000 because it was just 2002, it was 163000 because it was garbage. It was, a, it was a house that was converted to a duplex with a third unit added on the back. It was a legal triplex, but it was, it was just disgusting inside. In year three, I refinanced that triplex and took out $85,000 in equity. And, and how I did that is I, I, I did an um, agreement to terminate tenancy with all three tenants. So agreement to terminate tenancy is where the tenants agree to leave. So I bought them all out of their leases. So if, if they wanted 800 or 1500 or I don't remember what the numbers were at the time, I said, yeah, that's fine, I'll, I'll pay that. And then they left. And then I renovated all three units, not a lot of money, and rented the units out at 750 a month rather than two of those tenants actually moved to the duplex that I bought. Two of the tenants from this triplex, which are kind of cool. Um, um, I, I, I renovated it, rented them out for 750 a unit rather than 500 a unit, and the property appraised at about $120,000 more because it was bringing in that much more cash flow, and I was able to access $85,000 in equity. I bought three condos with that money. Two years later, I refinanced those three condos. Those three condos that I bought were all losing $50 to $60 a month, and I went, well, that's okay. It still makes sense in the big picture for me. And two years later, they weren't selling for $85,000 anymore. They were selling for $115,000 or $116,000. Got them reappraised, financed them at 80% of the current value. So I didn't, I didn't do anything to improve those properties at all. But I accessed $65,000 in equity, bought two more condos with that. In year six, I refinanced that triplex again. The triplex value didn't go up at all because my, my rents were the same. The mortgage had been paid down by $28,000, so I was able to access what I paid down. That's all. I bought a condo with that. Year seven, yes, this would have been about the time, maybe a couple, yeah, about the time that I really started following the millionaire real estate investor. And I went, why do I own this triplex? I don't like triplexes at all. I actually kind of hate triplexes. So why am I keeping this triplex? And I went, okay, I'm just going to sell it because I don't need to keep it for sentimental reasons. And I bought two townhouses with that, with that triplex money. So eight homes from simply making that first purchase and $35,000 was all that was out of my pocket here, turned into 1.2 million in real estate in eight years. And the reason I like to show examples of this is I don't want you to think that somebody's standing up in front of the room that has an extra $50,000 a year because they make so much money that they can go buy a house every year with $50,000. Well, yeah, if you have $50,000 a year extra money, you can do that. Um, that's not what I've done. I've taken properties, leveraged them, increased their uh, increase the mortgages when the values have gone up. I've done it a way that anybody can do it. It doesn't mean you'll do this with every property in this time frame. It might take you 40 years. It might take you two years. But all I did here was get that first property. And almost everybody in this room can get there. 
in the next two years, you can get to a point where you buy your first investment property. That's all you need to do to be able to do the rest. Now, if you have an extra $50,000 a year, cool. Then you can buy another property too, but I don't know how you teach that to somebody else. Go get an extra $50,000 a year. So what to buy, single family or multifamily? And I always say it depends. There's no right answer for everybody. So if we look at a multifamily property that you bought today for a half a million, renting for $500,000 a month, in 10 years, if it's still renting for $5,000 a month, the value of that property is still $500,000. It hasn't gone up or down at all. And people look at that and they say, well, I, that would never happen. Rents go up. Well, they don't automatically go up. You have to increase them. And a lot of people don't because they want to keep the tenants and they want to keep the peace and whatever. That, that's fine if you never plan on selling it, but if you plan on selling it, you'll want to make sure you keep up with the rents because the rents is going to determine the value. I got called into a very weird scenario with an agent at, at this office to look at a property in Kitchener, and it's kind of like Melrose Place, but a very bizarre Melrose Place. Like, very bizarre. So the, the tenants there are paying between 50 and $200 a month for three-bedroom townhouses. It's just really bizarre. Now, the guy that owns it paid cash for it many moons ago and doesn't care. So he just wants property taxes covered and, you know, heat and hydro and that kind of stuff doesn't really care about money at all. So the problem is, as a new owner, you can increase the rents 1.9% of $50. That's what you can do. Now, you can apply to the tribunal to have stuff, but I went, I don't know how you're ever going to sell this property. I don't know who's going to want to take on 32 tenants that are paying 50 to $200 a month. Like, it, I, if, if I was the owner, I would actually offer twenty or $30,000 in cash to each tenant to get them to leave. And then, you know, fix the units up, put it, get market rent, and then, and then do it. That's an extreme example of this, but that property was worth nothing right now. Nobody would pay anything for it because the rents haven't been kept up. The pros of a multifamily, there's one of everything to serve, some of the pros, one of everything to serve is lower cost per unit, usually more cash flow. The cons are they require larger down payments, they're harder than single family to sell. You can't liquidate part of your holdings if you wanted to, if you wanted to get some cash. You might be able to, to refinance it, but you might not be able to. If you had a single family today that you bought for 275000 that you're renting for $1,400 a month, 10 years goes by, that property could be worth 275000 it could be worth a million. It's worth whatever the market has gone up or down. doesn't matter what you're renting it for. You can, it would matter if the tenant had a locked-in long-term lease, but if you're just doing a one-year lease or a month-to-month, -month, you could be renting it for $50 a month, and the property could be worth a million dollars because it's not going to be determined on the rental income because 99.9% .9 of people that are going to look at buying a single-family house are going to be buying it to live in it. So that's, kind of, that's a nice thing about single-family is you can, you can force appreciation you can paint the bricks to make it look nicer and someone will pay more for the house. You can't paint the bricks on a 16-plex and get an investor to pay more. They don't care that the bricks are painted or that the landscaping is really nice. It's not going to turn into dollars. Single family, they're easier to finance. You get a different quality of tenant. And I want to be very clear when I say that. I don't mean a different quality of person because we're all equal as people. 100% equal. We're, we're all equal. I need to change that to say it in a, in a different way because when I don't talk about it, people go, that was kind of rude, quality of tenant. People who, who are investing in real estate understand what I mean between a townhouse that might be renting for $1,700 a month or a basement apartment in a really bad street in a downtown market. It's just, it's different. It's a different, 
It's a different experience. The $1,800 a month tenant in a lot of cases hires a cleaning company to, to, to clean when they move out. The $300 a month basement apartment leaves all of their stuff. It's just, a, it's a different, it's a much different experience. You can have a higher price appreciation. They're easy to liquidate a portion of your holdings. The cons are multiple roofs, lawns, furnaces to service, and less cash flow. I'm just going to go back to that for one second because I have to. Um, my wife, a, a number of years ago, she's a big Bon Jovi fan and Brian Adams, but mainly Bon Jovi. She doesn't know I exist when Bon Jovi's around. Like, I've, I've been to many concerts with her in the front row, and she'll say at the end of the concert, you were beside me? <laughs> that was cool. I didn't even know you are here. Um, but when we've, we've done some meet and greets with Bon Jovi, and she can't, she can't even speak. I just have, I have a conversation with him. She can't even speak. And I remember a few years ago, she said, how can you talk to Bon Jovi like you're talking to me? And I said, because he's your equal, and he's my equal. The reason you can't talk to Bon Jovi is because you think he's up here. And the bad part about that is if you think he's up here, you also think people are down here. Because if people are above you, there's also people beneath you. So I can sit beside a homeless person and talk to him like I'm talking to Bon Jovi because Bon Jovi and the homeless person are, are equals. That's how I can talk to absolutely anybody. And a lot of the relationships that I have with people that you might view as celebrities it's just because I can go up to them and talk to them. That's all. And they're just, they're all just, we're all just humans. We're all equal. I remember it was at a Keller Williams conference two months ago in Austin, Texas. And as we make our way back, there's quite a, a homeless crowd there. And, um, Dick Dillingham, who's, who was the instructor and who was walking back to the hotel with me, you know, I would stop and talk to anybody that I, that I could talk to. And he said, how do you determine which homeless person to talk to and which ones not to? And I said, I only talk to the ones that are breathing. That's how I determine which ones I talk to. That's it. And, and I said, well, come up to the next one with me. So we did, and this, we started talking to this guy, and he was a, he has PTSD, he was, he's a war vet, and, and he said, he said, Jeff, do you see that? Not asking for money or anything, he just wanted to talk. And it, that's, that's what a lot of them want to do, is just want to have a talk. And he said, do you see the Holiday Inn there? I said, yeah. He said, well, two years ago, I would go in there in my uniform, there's a Starbucks in there, and the Starbucks manager would come out and hand me a latte, and the, the hotel manager would come talk to me, and people would get pictures with me. I walked in there the other day, and they called the police, and the police escorted me out of the hotel. And the only thing that's changed is I don't have a uniform on anymore. Mm -hmm. And I went, God, it's, it's kind of crazy. Most of the homeless there in downtown Austin, a lot of them are, are, are war vets with, with, with PTSD. But it's amazing how we treat people differently. It's the same guy. He's not in the hotel. He wasn't begging or asking for money. Yes, he looks a little, he looks a little scruffy. But you know, next time you see a, a homeless person, just go talk to them. You know, they're they're just like they're just like you or I. And any of us, I happen to do a lot of work with the homeless, so I have a special place in my heart for them. They're just like you or I that have fallen on on hard times. I would do a lot with a lot of them with, um, you know, that had a lot of mental illness because most of them do have mental illnesses. And out of the cold downtown Kitchener, Jason used to do that with me. And, uh, you know, there would be somebody this far away from my face just yelling at me and screaming at me and waving their hands. And I just wouldn't move a muscle. And he'd say, like, aren't you afraid? And I'd say, in the history of this program, a homeless person has never touched anybody, ever, in 25 years. There's nothing to be afraid of, like, at all. When's the last time you saw, on the front page of the record, a homeless person attacks? <laughs> I've never seen it in any city. I'm not saying it's never happened. But we're so afraid of them for some reason, because it's just it's we're just afraid of the, the unknown. So that's kind of my rant there. We're all equal. 
So property management and mortgage financing. We do have latitude property management that's going to do a, a draw for a couple books at the end. One of my biggest regrets in investing in real estate was not having a property management company from day one. I thought, you know, I just have one property, or I just have two, or I just have three. I can do it all on my own. I want to go through the experience. I've learned over the years that, first of all, people that have their properties managed have more properties and have a higher net worth, and I know why. Because if you have one and you have a couple headaches, you don't want two and three and four and five and six. If you have a property manager, it doesn't matter whether you have one property or a hundred. You're looking at a financial statement every month. It doesn't. It simply doesn't matter. Why do you want to know everything you need to know about investing or about property management, the Landlord and Tenant Act, and all that stuff to save seventy or a hundred or eighty dollars a month? I look at it now and go, especially if you just have one, you'd want to hire a property manager, especially. Now, it is hard to find property managers that will take you on if you just have one property. Most of them want nothing to do with your $54 or your $60. But there are property managers out there that will take on one client. Latitude is one of them that, that will. And they'll kind of, they'll, they'll grow with you. But it's something I wish I would have done right from an early age. You see, I knock on, I knock on um, Dan's door and I'm the owner. And I say, Dan, I need the rent. It's the first of the month and you didn't send me the check. And Dan says, well, you know, my, my spouse just beat me up and I... They took the money. And then what do I say as the owner? I go, I'm very sorry to hear that. How about I come back in a week? Like, I'm, I'm very sorry. I'm human. I, that's, my own, that's my only response can be. It can't be, well, I don't care. Give me the money. You can't do that. And then I come back in a week, and he say, says, well, my, my check didn't come in or whatever. I go, okay, well, then I'll give you another week. You have no choice. You're a human being. Where the property manager will say, Dan, I'm really sorry that that happened. Um, so you think it's gonna be, you're going to have the money in a week or so? That's actually great, because this eviction notice here, it gives you 15 days to pay, so you actually get eight more days than you're looking for. And, and I'm just doing my job. Like, I hate to do it, but you know, I'm just, I'm just doing my job. And you got 15 days to pay. It's a different relationship. And it's okay. Like, he, he, he can do that. I could never do it as an owner. I'd say, you know, you haven't paid in 11 years. <laughs> just, oh, my God. Um, and mortgage financing, it's very important to talk to somebody that understands financing investment properties. It's, it's just different than financing a regular property out there. You need somebody that's looked, that can take a look at your situation now and go, how do we structure things now to allow you to do two or 10 or 20 properties over time should you want to do that? And you might never want to, but you don't know what the future holds. So setting up that line of credit right now that you're not even thinking about might be a good idea and then 10 years from now, you want to do some flip, and you, know, you have the, the, the capital to be able to do it without having to finance it. You need somebody that can look at things that way. We actually have Emily Pinero in the back of the room from Mortgage Alliance. If you do have any mortgage questions after, you can, you can ask her. She knows a thing or two. And where do I get the money to get started? You could refinance your current property. These are just where some people get started. Your personal savings. You could buy a rental as your very first purchase, which I think is an awesome thing. Um, I'm going to go through that in a second because I want to end on time. So putting it all together, you're not going to know everything you need to know about investing in real estate because you listen to me talk for an hour and a half. You, there's a lot more than that. You need to get together with whoever brought you here this evening and start developing a plan and setting a goal. So your goal might be, your first goal is to meet with the person. Your next goal is you want to buy a property in the next six months or two years or whatever and then work on a strategy to do that. That's kind of putting it all together here, but this is a process, it's not an event. You're not gonna know everything you need to know just because you listen to me talk today.
and set a goal. If you don't set a goal, likely nothing is going to happen. You're going to remember hearing me talk 10 years from now going, man, those semis are now 1.9 million? Why didn't I do something? And I'm, I'm not saying they're going to be. So I had a goal to run a marathon, which is, it's 42 kilometers, and it's about 41 and a half too many. It just is. It was a completely awful experience. I, I hated it from the start to the finish. The best was the finish, but I hated it. But I had the goal to do it. I wanted to do it. And Byron, Byron, Byron Caseros is in the room. He was my running buddy. <laughs> what an awful experience. I think he still runs, but, but I don't. And so I, I went, okay, I'm going to run 42 kilometers. What do I got to do to do that? And the training program that I found online, whether it was the best or not, I don't know, was 1,565 kilometers. So I, I thought, I got two kids and a wife. I don't want to die during the race, so I need to, I need to train for it. So if I got home at 11 o'clock at night and I had a 13-mile run to do, I actually did it, either on the treadmill or I went out and ran. I did what I needed to do. It's the same with setting a goal to buy a property. You need $20,000 in the next 14 months. Well, it's that simple math. What do we need to do every day to be able to, to get to that? you got to set the goal and then work towards it or nothing's going to happen. If I just said, oh, I'm going to run the marathon in eight months and then showed up on the day of the marathon, <laughs> definitely would have died. I remember crossing the finish line with this, this other Jeff guy, and he said, that was amazing. I can't wait to do that again. And I said, I will never do that again. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why. I don't want you to do that twice. It's... I was in Ghana recently with um, Dick. His name's Dick. He's a pastor, and he's 72 years old, and he runs like 10 of them a year. It's just crazy to me. So start as soon as you can and consider making your first purchase, your first home, an investment property. So starting now versus starting in 10 years. So if you bought it, let's say you got a 25-year-old 20, or 35-year-old or 45-year-old at home right now, buying their place price property today for 200 versus waiting for 10 years when the price might be 296,000, assuming values go up 2 to 4% a year. Now, that could be 300,000, it could be 800,000, whatever. There's a benefit to starting today. Oh, I've only talked about this twice. So I wrote a book, The Millionaire Father, a number of years ago, and I always had a really hard time talking about the book. Because I had a hard time standing in front of a room saying, can you buy my book for $10? Like, that would be really cool. I, I just had a really hard time doing it. So I found I was, I was doing seminars going, like, there's a whole bunch at the back, just grab one when you leave. Because I, I just had a hard time doing it. I don't have a hard time anymore. Um, it's now on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. If you go on there and download the book, I don't know what it is, it's $10 or so, 100% of the purchase price, minus what iTunes takes, goes to Possibilities International's bank account. I don't see a dime of it, so now I have no problem promoting it. Mm -hmm. So you should. If you, if, if you want to thank me in any way, if you saw any value, go do that. It's, it's $9 or $8. I don't see a penny of it. It all goes to Possibilities International. So I'm okay with it now. So this is the beginning if you take action. If not, it will be the end. And for most of you, it, it will be the end. You'll never, you'll never do anything. So do something. Right now, get out your phones and email the person that invited you this evening and set a time to get together with them and find out how do we explore this further. Let's do a tour of different types of properties in the, in, in the city. It is a process, though. This is not a rah-rah where you listen to me talk and then you go tomorrow and buy a property because you have to buy a property tomorrow because they're all going away. They're not going anywhere. There's lots of properties out there, but take some action. So I will leave that and we ask for a spontaneous round of applause. And I think
Man, that episode was fire, man. Dude, I didn't even know that you knew this much information. <laughs> that was fun. Oh, man, we gotta do this more often. We will. <laughs>